Well, today we're going to continue in our sermon series um, about God's work through His Son, Jesus Christ, after the resurrection. And you're going to see on the screen in just a moment the scripture text that we're going to be in, which comes to us from John 21. John 21. And while you're turning there, I just want to share, if you will allow me before we dig into the sermon, I would just love to share with you, if you'll give me the pastoral privilege, kind of what God is teaching me and what he's stirring up in my heart. So I want to acknowledge that we'll get to the sermon in just a moment. About two or three years ago, I became aware of some of the underlying tension racially in our country. And listen, there are a lot of tensions and a lot of issues in our community, but what I'm referring to is I became aware of racial tension between Caucasians and African Americans. And I started to realize that it's been happening for a long time. I just had not been awake to it. I just simply had not been aware. And so what I began doing a couple of years ago, and I haven't shared this on the platform every Sunday, but... I began praying, Lord, what, what, is the, what is the solution to peace in our communities? Lord, how can we communicate to people that don't look like us and for them to communicate to me what it means to live in harmony with one another? Because we know that's your heart. And so I began praying about it. And the more I prayed and the more I read Scripture, the more uneasy I became about what is broken and wrong in our world. Uh, last fall... I noticed that the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, the ERLC, uh, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're like, yes, I love Jesus, but what are the practical tools to live and minister in this culture? You need to follow ERLC on social media. Uh, They were facilitating a conference along with the Gospel Coalition. And I saw it promoted in November, and it was called MLK 50. MLK 50, the Martin Luther King 50th anniversary of his death. And it was this past week, April 4th, in Memphis. And I really felt like the Lord prompted me to to register for the conference. And I am trying to learn. I am more and more increasingly trying to listen more than I talk. Confession. And what the Lord is teaching me and I keep coming away from is saying this statement. Sometimes verbally, sometimes just in my heart. I just didn't know what I didn't know. I am learning so much that I just didn't know what's happening in our world and in our culture, especially when it comes to racial tension or unity. I just didn't know what I didn't know. And so this past week in Memphis, uh, Ronnie and I were privileged to go to this conference, and it was a 48-hour conference there in Memphis. And yes, they talked about Dr. King, but they talked more and more about how the Lord's heart is for racial unity. That when you read Scripture, the Lord's heart is for racial unity. We know that scripture begins in Genesis chapter 12 with the Lord telling a man named Abram, I'm going to bless you, and one of his descendants was Jesus, and so that I can bless all people and all nations through you. That's where scripture starts. The Lord's heart is for the nations, for the ethnicities, for the races. And then in Revelation 7, you you can check me on this, in Revelation 7 it says that the Lord is going to raise up a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Like, that's where it started, that's where it's headed, and we're in the middle, we're in the in-between. And I knew this, but I did not realize how deeply our African-American brothers and sisters in our communities, but, but hear me, in our churches in America, are not being communicated that gospel truth or it's not being demonstrated to them, and, and a lot of times from white individuals. Well, I also know that one of the things that God did was he created man and woman in the image of God. 
that he gave us his image. We all bear his image, which means our lives have worth, not because I said your life has worth, but because God has, God has made it so. And every man, woman, child of every race, of every ethnicity, their life has dignity because they're here. I know that about our God. I know that about humanity, but I, I'm just becoming more aware. I didn't know what I didn't know. That there are a lot of our African-American brothers and sisters who do not feel that a lot of times we live that way. I just didn't know what I didn't know. And this whole time, I'm growing uneasy. I don't, I don't know what to do with all this. Like, what do I do with all this? But I know what's in Scripture. And so often I've thought, well, that's a political issue. That's a political issue. And I'm very careful as the shepherd and the pastor not to bring outside voices or things in when we're here to gather and worship. And what the Spirit has been reminding me is the Scripture I just quoted you from Genesis and from Revelation and everywhere in between. This is not a political issue. This is a gospel issue. The Lord Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? What's the most important commandment? And he said, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second one's just like it. Like these can't be separated. If you love God, then you need to love your neighbor. If you love God, then you need to love your neighbor. In other words, I read that this week and thought, it is impossible to truly love God and hate someone else. I just didn't know what I didn't know. But one of the things I am mindful of is how complex this issue is. And how deep the hurt on any side of the equation runs. And even when I say racial unity, how it causes some of us to recoil. I assure you, I will only address things that are gospel issues as the Lord makes me, our church, and our body aware of a holy uneasiness. That the church needs to be searching scripture for God's heart on the nations. All races, all ethnicities, all neighbors. And the only way we can love and do that well is if Christ is alive inside of us. So one of the things I am asking God to do, I am, I am looking to scripture for my number one voice that speaks into my life about this issue. I read blogs. I listen to preachers that are black. I listen to preachers that are white. I, I read blogs. I read magazines. I read articles. But the number one voice that speaks into my formation about how the local church is to love God and love people is Scripture. I want you to know that. But the second thing I'm asking God to do is, as I look to Scripture, I'm asking Jesus to inform and shape how I personally respond to this when the Lord makes me aware of it, not only just from a distance, but very personally in my own life. And I'm also praying about how the Lord would call us to love God and love people. Now, the reason I share that with you is because this has been going on for a few years in my soul. It, it, is, it has made my conscience uneasy. But I have waited because I do not want it to be overly emotional, I don't want it to be spur of the moment. I don't want it to be preachery. I want it to be very pastoral, very loving. But our Father's heart is to see people come to faith and find their identity, their purpose, and their significance in the person of the risen Jesus Christ. And that is our mission. And I am praying that the Lord will open up doors for us to do that with all ethnicities and all races and all people from all tribes and all tongues and all socioeconomic backgrounds. And diversity is not the goal. Diversity is not the goal. But if that's where we're headed, we want our congregations to be racially and ethnically diverse, right? I pray for that for us. 
that is a byproduct. Diversity is a derivative of being faithful to the Scripture and on mission with Jesus to fulfill the Great Commission. It is a byproduct. It will happen. He'll take care of it. So can I ask you to do this with me? This, this, this is just, if I was going to ask you to do something, would you just join me in praying? When you pray each day, when you pray each week, would you just pray? And would you say, Lord, show me your heart for people? That's the simple prayer I want you to Show me your heart for the nations. And then pray, Lord, what, what would you have us do as a congregation in the years ahead? What would you have us do in the congregation in the years ahead to love you and to love others, especially as it pertains to racial unity? It is a complex issue. I do not mean to oversimplify, but I know the number one source I need to go to for this and how we think and behave is Jesus. So rather than when you see somebody saying, I'll pray for you, I promise I will, I just thought, we need to pray right now. We just need to pray right now. And if you will join me, I will lead us. Can I just lead us in that prayer? Can I just lead us in that prayer? Lord Jesus, we know that there are some people who are averse to the gospel because they have seen even Christians behave in a way that is counter to who you revealed yourself to be. Lord Jesus, forgive us, and this, this is not just about this issue, forgive the local church if we have ever historically for centuries or now behaved in a way that does not communicate your love and concern for others. And Lord, would you give us a heart to see people of all backgrounds come to faith in Jesus Christ? Would you cause our church to be loving so that when people walk in the door, Jesus, I believe this is happening on Sundays. We have a friendly congregation. We strive intentionally for hospitality. But would you cause our church to always be known in our community as a place where people are welcome and they are introduced to the truth that is found in Scripture about Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be the church that you died to establish and that we would be in the years ahead the church that you now live to empower for your glory and for our joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, I thank you so much for allowing me to share what the Lord is teaching me. I pray you will join me on that journey and just be obedient to what God reveals to you in that. Uh, I did mention that we do have a text for today, and so we're going to do that. We're going to read from John 21. And this sermon series is entitled, Now What? The sermon series is entitled, Now What? Like, what happens after Easter? Right? Because we spend a lot of time, intentionality in local churches, to focus on our Easter gatherings. I've got to confess, I, I'm not wearing a blazer today. I wore one on Easter. I thought a little bit more about how to dress up on Easter. That's just a cultural thing we do. I don't even know where I'm going to eat. But you can tell I haven't missed many meals. It's going to be fun. It's going to work out. But last Sunday, I knew where we were all going for Easter lunch. Oftentimes, we celebrate the resurrection. Jesus is alive. And maybe we don't voice this, but we sit with the reality. Okay, he's alive. Now what? Well, that's exactly what Jesus was addressing when he talked to the disciples in one of the first appearances, or one of the first and few appearances that he saw the disciples after the resurrection. Jesus answers the question, now what? And I want you to see where this comes from, John 21. So would you stand with me in honor of God's word this morning? We'll read from John 21. And we'll read verses 9 through 14 together. It says, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. 
And even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus had appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When the disciples got out on land and saw a charcoal fire, Jesus said, bring some of the fish you've caught. In verse 12, come have breakfast with me. Bring some of the fish and sit down with me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, cause us to be the church that you died to establish and empower us to be the church that you now live to be on mission with. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things I want to encourage you to do this week is I want to encourage you to read all of John 21. I want you to read all of John 21, and what you will find is that this is several days, or just actually a few moments after the resurrection of Jesus. And the disciples are fishing. They had been fishing all night. The scripture tells us that Peter and others got in the boat, and they began fishing. Well, they fished all night, and they had caught nothing. They had caught nothing all night. They are fishermen for a living, and they had caught nothing. It most likely was a discouraging moment. The Bible tells us that at daybreak, Jesus stood on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, but they couldn't tell it was him. It was most likely around 100 yards, about a football field away, and they couldn't tell at first that it was Jesus. But in verses 5 and 6 of this chapter, Jesus calls out to them and says, Friends. He didn't just say, Fellas, or hey, you. He said, Friends, do you have any fish? And they replied, no, of course. They had been fishing all night and they had not caught anything. So Jesus yells out, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. I don't know if the humor or the irony is lost on you, but these fishermen who do this for a living are going to be coached up by an innocent bystander on the shore who hasn't been with him, much less than they are fishermen for a living and he's a carpenter. But we'll leave that story for another time. Cast the net on the right side and you'll catch fish. They're out of options. Why not? We might as well try. And they do exactly as Jesus says. And when they do, there's a miraculous catch of fish. The nets begin to swell. The boat began to tilt so much so that the nets almost broke as the fish gathered together. There were so many, but the net wasn't torn. And it was at this moment that John, we're reading his gospel. It was at this moment that John, a follower of Jesus, realized, oh my gosh, Oh my gosh, do you know who that is? Do you know who that is? And he might have realized, his eyes might have, the light might have gotten just a little bit brighter at dawn. Maybe he realized it was Jesus. Maybe he realized, hey, there's nobody that can make a command, and when we obey it, we have that type of increase. That's Jesus. But the Bible says that John realized it was Jesus. So John turns to Peter and informs Simon Peter, that's Jesus. Do you know who that is? That's Jesus. Well, Peter, being the impulsive, emotional, excitable guy that he is, gathers his garments and jumps out of the boat. He jumps out of the boat and swims to the shore. I don't know how many of us in the room have swam about 100 yards, but this fella was moving. He jumped out of the boat and he went all the way to the shore. And the Bible tells us that John and the other disciples just, we want to see Jesus too, but not that bad. They just start rowing. They start rowing slowly but surely, make their way to the shore. And the Bible says that when they got to the shore, Jesus was making preparations for breakfast. 
And there's a lot happening in this chapter. There's so much happening in this chapter that we could mine it for biblical truth all week long. But there's one thing I want us to walk away with this morning. There's one thing I want us to be mindful of when we say, okay, Jesus is alive. And Jesus brings new life. Now what? There's one thing I want to point out from this text, and I want to put it on this screen. You can jot this down, you can take a screenshot of it, you can do whatever you want with it. But I want you to know that this truth comes to us from this scripture. Jesus wants to redeem your past so that it doesn't hinder your future. Jesus wants to redeem our past so that it doesn't prohibit us from what he's going to invite us to do in the future. Let me show you exactly what I'm talking about. Did you notice in verse 9, when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire with fish lying on it. They saw a charcoal fire, rather, with fish lying on it, and Jesus said, bring some more of the fish you just caught. Now, for me, I don't need to know that it's a charcoal fire. A fire is a fire. I don't care if you use quick starter and it's logs. I don't care if you have charcoal and it's got a flame or it doesn't have a flame. I don't need to know. It's a fire. I, I'm more concerned about the breakfast, actually. John is the type of writer that he doesn't get into a lot of extracurriculars. He's kind of just, here's the truth, here's exactly what happened, there you go. But John says they showed up and it was a charcoal fire. Now when he says charcoal fire, it's not just a visual thing he wants us to see, but charcoal has a distinct smell. I don't know how many of us have, have been to a bonfire recently or you sat around a fire pit and the next day your clothes still smelled like charcoal, they were smoky. There are five senses of the human body. What we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch, and what we smell. It's often said that scent, what we smell, is the, well, it's the greatest sense of the human body that's tied to memory. That scent is the greatest sense that is tied to memory. And John says when they showed up, it was a charcoal fire. Here comes Peter. He's excited. He runs up on the shore. Hey, Jesus, what's going on? And he smells the charcoal. Now, the interesting thing is that John in his gospel only mentions charcoal twice. And as I understand it, this word for charcoal in the Greek is not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. That's as I understand it. The other time it's mentioned is in John 18. The other time that it's mentioned is in John 18. It's just a few chapters backwards. If you want to read that this week, please do. But let me just summarize what's happening. You may remember that in John 18, Jesus has been arrested He's been arrested and taken to the high priest's house. And he's standing in a courtyard trying to warm himself by the fire. And in John 18, John tells us that this fire was no ordinary fire. It says the servants and the officials had made a, guess what kind of fire? Charcoal. Yes, Max, a charcoal fire. And the next time you see charcoal, you're going to think of that. It was a charcoal fire. The last time that Peter smelled charcoal, he was standing outside the high priest's house when Jesus was being trumped up on false charges. And Jesus had told Peter, before the day breaks and the rooster crows, you're going you're gonna to abandon me. You're going to deny me three times. And Peter had said, there's no way. There's no way. Like, I will charge the gates of hell for you. I'm all in. And Jesus said, you're going to bail on me when, when I need it the most. And the Bible tells us that it was outside in that courtyard with that charcoal fire while he was getting warm, close enough where the charcoal scent was in his, in his tunic and in his robe. And that three different times people said, hey, whoa, whoa, I know you. You, you follow Jesus. And now, hey, he's in a lot of trouble. Aren't you one of his followers? 
And out of fear and concern that he would be guilty by association, three different times he said, no way. I'm not your guy. And he was close enough to the high priest's house that he was in close proximity to Jesus when he said this, when this happened. The last time Peter smelled a charcoal fire, not his greatest moment. Not a good time for Peter. Peter comes running up to Jesus on the Galilean seashore after the resurrection. Oh my gosh, it's Jesus. Whoa, last time I was around you at any length of time, I, gosh, man, think about the guilt and the shame that welled up inside of him. I don't know if you're excited about the resurrection, but sometimes the enemy reminds you of your past. Maybe I'm the only one in the room. I don't know. But culture and the world being what it is, and some of us have posted things on social media. We live in a day and an age where on social media, some of us are going to be reminded of some of the things we're like, whoa, not my finest moment. I don't know if anybody in the room is excited that Jesus is alive, and you actually are optimistic and looking forward to what he might invite you to participate with him. Because listen, here's the deal. Jesus is resurrected. He's alive. And Jesus raises dead people. He resurrects circumstances that look like they're beyond hope, and he invites the local church to join him. I want in. I don't want cotton candy Christianity. Like from here until the moment Jesus takes me home, I want in on that. I want a front row seat to that. I don't know if you feel the same way, but you're like, he can't use me. Like I, I, I bailed. I, I tanked when the chips were down. Like, and, and, and maybe you're your worst critic. Maybe people don't say anything to you, but you remind yourself of how you're not qualified. Well, the interesting thing about John 21 is that Jesus never mentioned a word about the high priest courthouse. Jesus never said about his house. Jesus never said anything about that charcoal fire. You, you remember then? Well, <laughs> we need to talk about that. But John does. John mentions it. Why would John put it in there? There are no throwaway lines in the Bible. It's not like, well, I'll just put this in here, but I don't really intend to do anything with that. Why would John put that in there? John wants us to know that one of the things that most likely happened for Peter when he got there is he was reminded of his greatest failure and of his past and of a loose end that was not tied up. That in order to do what God was going to invite him to do in the future, you can't move forward with the mission that Jesus was about to give the disciples if your hands are full of your past. And where we've been is often a predictor of where we'll go in the future. I'm all about history. I was a history minor in college. I, yes, I look back to the past or I look forward to the future. What I'm talking about is we have this in the text because it's going to be impossible for Peter, the disciples, or any of us to hold on to our failures, our mistakes, or the thing that makes us so guilty and shame-ridden. We can't hold on to that and take hold of what Jesus is going to call us to do if our hands are full. And next week, we're going to see that Jesus invites Peter to an incredibly glorious mission. There's nothing that Jesus loves more than the local church. Good Friday, Jesus died to ransom and redeem people to bring into his family. Purchased with the blood of Jesus. If you're part of the local church through your faith in Jesus, you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Pretty important to Jesus. Next Sunday, you're going to see that Jesus says, Peter, I want you to take care of my church. How flattering. We'll dig into this next week. It has nothing to do with Peter's qualifications. It has to do with Jesus enabling him and empowering him to do it. We'll get, oh, I can't stand it. We'll get to that next week, okay? It's going to be a good Sunday. 
But what he's doing here, there's so much here. What he's doing is saying this. So much I want to do in your life. And when he says, come have breakfast with me, we, it, it's right. What Hunter said earlier, we, we're microwave society, freaky fast lunches, on the go, usually individual. When he says, sit down with me, what he's saying is like, stay with me. In the East, as different than the West, you, you didn't just eat and you're out in 30 minutes. You abided. You fellowshiped. You communed together. And what Jesus is doing is saying, listen, I desire to restore you so that you are prepared for what I want to do with you in the future. In other words, I don't want there to be anything that hinders you or holds you back from what I'm going to ask and invite you to do. And so let's go ahead, let's go ahead and work through that, Peter. And next week, again, we'll see where that, that, that fleshes out even more so. But I can't help but read this and think about the reality that Jesus didn't condemn him or judge him. And Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But we do know that in order for us to be ready when God opens the door into our lives or into the, opens a door for our entire church family, we need to be ready. We may not have time to get ready. And so one of the questions I wrote down is, what, what is it in my life? What is it in your life? What is it in our life as a church? What is it that we need to ask Jesus to restore, to redeem, to fix, to heal, to, to, to reshape, repurpose, so that we are prepared to do what he wants us to do in the future? And I can answer that for me, and there are things in the church where I'm like, Lord, I think this is how you're pruning us, which is a good and biblical and healthy thing. This is where I think you're challenging us. This is where I think you're convicting us. So I try to keep my pulse spirit-led on what God is doing among us, but I can't answer that question for you. I can't answer that question for you. I might be able to a little bit if we're in community, if we're in the same Bible reading group or the same mentor relationship or the same small group, because I might know your story. I might know your struggle. I might say, well, based on what you've said, we see in Scripture and how he works in the lives of believers, he may be up to X, Y, and Z in your life. And that's why, listen, 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 your identity, your worth, your significance, your value comes from your relationship with Jesus. And you need to be fully confident in that. In Christ. Paul told the church in Philippi, my God will supply everything you need in Christ. You need to know that. You need to own that. You need to embrace that. And if there's something hindering you from that, then we need to go ahead and deal with it. You need to say, Lord, just walk with me through this. And that's why if you're not in community, you, you and I, if we're not in community, we're robbing ourselves of the opportunity to have other people come alongside of us, put their arms around us, hold us up when we're going through that. But this is not about judgment. This is not about condemnation. This is about the Lord saying, we're going somewhere as a church. We're going somewhere as a church. And I want you to come along. And Peter, I don't ever want that charcoal thing to be a weight around your neck. I don't want that charcoal thing to be something that crops up in the back of your mind and it causes you to be hesitant when you need to be confident with the gospel. So, so here's what I am excited about in this series is that Jesus not only saves us, but then he edifies, he sanctifies, he builds us up. He helps us, layman's terms, thrive. That's what's now. That's what's next. And I think he's doing that in individuals in this room. I think he's doing it in our church. But I really feel he brought us to this moment to say, is there anything that needs to be redeemed, restored, removed, confessed, repented of, so that we can move forward in Christ for the future that he's laid out for us? And so here's what I would love to do. This is between you and Jesus. I, I'm not someone you come to and tell me so that I can pray it to the Lord. I love this about Jesus. He tore down the barrier between you and God. You can go straight to him. So here's what I would love to do. Can I just encourage you to bow your head and close your eyes?